This is the Working Drummer Podcast, featuring conversations with ground-level pros from all styles and regions. Real drummers with real stories about making a living in music. Hey everyone, this is Matthew Krause, and you are listening to the podcast Working Drummer. Today my guest is drummer, comedian, podcaster, and entrepreneur Al Murray. Al is a co-founder and managing director of the British Drum Company. He is also one of UK's most recognizable comedians. In his guise as the pub landlord, he has played drums with the likes of Phil Collins and Queen, as well as touring the world, appearing on TV and radio. He has published books and hosts a podcast, but his first love is drums. A keen and enthusiastic drummer Al has played since he was a kid and is currently active in the band Fat Cops. Lastly, Al and historian James Holland discuss all matters of the Second World War in their immensely popular podcast, We Have Ways of Making You Talk. The podcast is a bi-weekly show exploring the war close-up, and James and Al have a stunning knowledge of the subject. If you're interested in supporting what Zach and I do here at the podcast, you can become a Patreon member. Find us at patreon.com slash drummer. Any donation in any amount gets you access to exclusive content that's provided by our former guests. This content covers a variety of topics, but it's all educational and applicable to the working professional. If Patreon isn't your thing, you can make a one-time donation through PayPal, and you can find links to both of these things on our homepage at workingdrummer.net. And while you're there, you can find out more about this episode and the over 300 episodes that we've done over the years. And no matter what your platform of choice is for listening to podcasts, giving us a like, a rating, and review always helps us grow. So within this episode, I do talk about how I discovered that Al was a drummer, and we do talk right away about his podcast that I'm, I'm very inspired by as a podcaster myself. But also, uh, for people that know me, I am somewhat obsessed with the Second World War, and he does such a great job presenting the subject and is so knowledgeable of it, and I just really enjoy it. We do get into the drummy drum stuff as well with the British drum company that he's involved in and his love of drumming. So I hope you enjoy this conversation with Al Murray. So last week you had a gig. Uh, where were you yes. playing at? Oh God, where were we last week? Um, I'll have to look at my diary because I sort of, um, I've got this kind of a fire and forget attitude to um, <laughs> to, to stand up gigs. Um, we were in we were in Hayes, which is in West London, so actually just up the road from where I live, which was which was which was good because it meant an early night home. Some friends came, had a, we had a few drinks and all that, rather than sitting on a motorway for hours on end afterwards, which is the, the normal 
our normal thing because the UK is so small you can come you can come back from most places you can come home from pretty much everywhere uh in the UK so um with a few exceptions but so so yeah last week last week it was a home it was like a a home game I was home in 20 minutes so oh you my know, gosh. That, that's always yeah, that's always a good one. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Well, I, I want to ask you more about that. Um, I, yeah, sure. I, I, can t- I can tell you a couple years ago, my so I, I do this podcast with a great co-host who is obsessed with cooking, and he goes, "Hey, man, I want to do an episode on cooking." And there's this <laughs> fabulous drummer here in Nashville, Marcus Finney, who's really into cooking. Yeah. He goes, and I just want to, I want to do. He goes, "What do you think about that?" I said, "You know what, man? It's it, it's our fucking podcast. We'll do whatever we want to do." You know, he he said, yep, Let, yep. Let's, "Let's get into the weeds about this." I said, and I joked yeah. with him. I said, "Hey, man, I'm going to do one on the Second World War and tanks." <laughs> and and he goes, "Yeah, you do that." So I'm uh, <clears throat> hanging out. I'm, I'm I'm listening to this podcast and. Uh, James Holland is is talking about your studio, and he goes, "Yeah, I see your yeah. your, your your pictures, and you got a you got some, you got your drums there, and and you guys yeah. are on this stream, this video stream." And I was like, "Yeah, listening to the audio, going, what, 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 what are they, what are they talking about?" And I I I come to discover a couple years ago that you're a drummer, and yeah. that I I didn't know, and and I had become a a big fan of your your guys's podcast. We have ways of making yeah. you talk. Yeah, and so I, I I I was thinking to myself, oh my gosh, that 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 joke I made with Zach is going to become a reality. I'm I'm going to find out who <laughs> Al Murray is and and what's going on, and to discover just you don't just own drums, you play drums, you're part owner of a of a of a yeah. drum company. I mean, there's just so yeah. much to unpack here. But the first thing yeah. I wanted to dive into is people are what are you talking? What what podcasts? So. In a very short amount of time, you guys have grown yep. quite a bit. And yeah. did you guys expect this to grow? So tell us a little bit about the podcast, what it is. Well, the the, the podcast it's it's very it's a it's a very simple proposition, really. It's it, it's called We Have Ways of Making You Talk, and we talk about James and I talk about the Second World War. Now, James is a historian of the Second World War, you know, multi you know best selling published author here, particularly here in the UK. So there's lots of books books in the UK. He has a history festival. He's a big figure in, in particularly in British military history here. And um, but he's a friend of mine, and and I'm really interested in the Second World War, and was sort of brought up on it by my father as a thing to be interested in and Jim and I became friends a few years ago and we, what would happen is if he was in London to see his publisher or whatever he'd say you're around and we'd go and sit in a pub and we'd talk about the war and <laughs> which I know it doesn't, it doesn't sound like everyone's cup of tea but there it is and and someone got wind of this and said well would would you want to do a podcast and it's like yeah I mean as James says what's not to like we'd, we'd absolutely love to do that but it was the it was the I mean it was the pandemic that's turned it into this big big sort of this sort of beer moth that it is now. Where because when the when the first lockdown happened here in the UK, we I I was about to go on tour, so my diary was suddenly empty. You know, like 40, 40 shows or thirty five shows or something just disappeared out of my diary. I was going to be home. I was going to be around, and we were just edging towards using this kind of Zoom technology for doing the the podcast. So we were we were kind of ready, and we decided. Well, what we'll do is we'll double the numbers of stuff episodes we're doing. I'll read some audio books because I got this home studio here. So I read a load of out of print stuff as audio books, and then we do a live cast 
we were doing them once a week, but they're every fortnight now, where we sit and chat and have the kind of conversations we have, answer people's questions or try to, and then speak to other historians. And that's ba- that's basically it. It's yeah. people who are interested in the subject getting together. It's kind of, I mean, it's kind of like like any of the, you know, if you listen to it, you know, like a drummer's hangout thing. It's a couple of people who are interested in the Second World War talking about it, hanging out, looking at looking at pictures, talking about films, talking about the war and its place in popular culture and our, and political culture here in the UK. And just the subject is this endless onion, pe- uh, endlessly peelable onion that, that we've been doing. We've been doing it for three years now. And I, so we're halfway through the Second World War, or at least the or at least the British one, and we'll, we'll be <laughs> right. we'll we'll be done. We, we won't be done in three years' time. You know, we're gonna we're out, easily gonna outrun the war. <laughs> you're gonna be like you're gonna be like the show Mash that lasted longer than the Korean War. You know exactly. Or the or the British show. There's a British sitcom called Dad's Army about the yep. Home Guard. That, that you know ran for much much longer than the, than right, the war right, itself. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, you bring up some some interesting points. A lot of people ask me like, why am I uh, so interested in the Second World War? And yeah. and I th- I think because the more you learn, the more you find out how little you know in all the different facets oh. and aspects that you oh. all all the trails you can go down. Yeah. Well, this is it. Um, this is it. Is I thought I knew a fair bit about it um, when we started, and I now know. I know, every every episode every episode we record, I feel like actually I'm uh, how much how little I know, and I, like feels like I know less every week, even though I know I know more. <laughs> and um, I mean, it's like I mean to be honest, it's like studying anything. It's like if when you really start to study playing the drums, yeah. you realise how far you've how far you've got to go, and how how little you've really mastered, and and actually always the story with any presenting anything that you're that, that you know that you're into is striking the balance between what you can do and and what you're trying to do and and making art with 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 the two you you you, you know what i mean oh because uh, we can't all be because we can't all be gavin harrison we can't all be buddy rich we can't all be uh you know whoever but we can express ourselves in our own way and that's that's how i feel about the this history podcast is I've got some I've got I've got some opinions now about things that I didn't have I just didn't dare venture before but it is also this thing you know we we spoke to someone last week an expert last week who who talked took us through the, the the espionage aspect of the British war effort yeah which is incredibly complex and strange and because they're all spying on each other. All the British people are spying on each other as well as well. And they're spying on the Americans and they're running propaganda in America to try to get America into the war at one point. And then at the end of the war, they're running propaganda in, in America to try and get America to be nice to Britain after, the, you know, like it's just that, that and that's before you even need to pick up a rifle or talk about a tank or, 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 or any of the combat aspects of it. Like the sheer scale of the event means that there's endless, there's literally endless stuff to talk about. It's really amazing. Uh, here's a quote from you. Why am I so interested? Because we very clearly seen in recent times, crisis reveals character in every way imaginable. And the Second yeah. World War offers the historian the biggest crisis in human history. Yeah, that 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 that's that's squarely it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, and the other thing is, I mean, in Britain, we're very we we have over the last eighty years we've been very focused on our experience here, obviously, because inevitably you are, and and you know, and Britain was bombed during the war, was was attacked during the war, and that's a, a was a, a a novel and uniting experience for people in this country. But then, then you, but then you look at what happened in China, which is a thing that's just not on any British people's radar at all, and it might be on American people's radar a bit more because America was sort of ostensibly involved in the Chinese war, but in the war in China, but, but maybe not. 
you know, like Le Chenault's uh, um, Flying Tigers and all that sort of stuff and Stilwell's involvement. But people don't know. And the scale of that conflict that ran for, for much longer than, the, the, you know, what we call the Second World War, this enormous, you know, continent-size uh, struggle between China and Japan and China and China and, you know, and China in America and China in Britain and China, you know, like, and and Japan and again, you know, all this stuff going on that, I, that you know, until we spoke to a historian about it, I really, that we got on, I really, I knew not, I knew nothing about it. And it's, yeah. that's where, what, three, five, maybe 10 million people died during the conflict and no one knows about it. Well, it's, it's, that's what's fascinating for me in discovering your podcast is because as you know, Americans are very focused on our history. Uh, I mean, there's yeah. you guys talk about there's uh, tourists that visit Normandy and don't even know that British England was involved. And in, in I know, that. I know, it's ex- it, it's extraordinary because we yes we, we we spoke to a we spoke to a friend of ours, a, a guy called Paul Woodage, who's a who's a guide out there, and that's his job. He's that's his bread and butter, is guiding, and and he 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 tells this story about he's he's in uh, Sam Eriglees, the which is the famous place where the 82nd airborne fought and an, an epic an epic heroic action and uh no you know and you can't argue with that and and this these american tourists were there and they overheard people with english accents and the guy said i bet you wish you'd i bet you wish you <laughs> brits had been in in on this one and he's kind of like oh, well more of us here than there were of you but let's not let's not get yeah, bogged down in that and, and i think that's it's amazing, but it's but it is also completely understandable because one of the, one of the other things about about the Second World War and a lot of people did it in this country actually. Is people just want once it was over, people wanted it behind them, so they so they they tried to forget about it. They tried to drop it. They tried to make it go into go into lost memory because it's so horrendous. And you think if you're like a if you're a, you know some boy from Iowa who never ever thought he'd leave the state, let alone let alone the country, and you're in Normandy and your buddies are being killed, it might well be that, you, you, you know, you, first of all, you don't know the British involved at all, or you don't care, and you, you, you go back home and you never want to talk about it again. So, no, so sort of essential parts of the story and the memory are not transmitted because it's such a terrible thing. We, 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 we were looking at um, a writer called Paul Fassell, Paul Fassell, who was a literary critic, looking at his stuff the other day, and he wrote a lot about the... The war. He wrote a thing in 1982 called "Thank God for the Atom Bomb" because his view was, if the if the atomic bombs hadn't been dropped, he was going to have to go fight in Japan, and he knew he and he was certain he'd be killed. Mm-hmm. And he wrote about how he just all he wanted to do about with the war was forget about it, get it out of his memory, put it behind him, and he couldn't. And so you can see why. I, I mean, I'm 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 I used to really scoff at this when people America and what Americans do and don't know. I used to scoff at that, and I don't anymore. I'm sympathetic to the fact that people <laughs> want, really want to forget about it, and you know, it's happened in this country too. British people don't know that there were Indian soldiers fighting for the for the British Empire after all, and they don't know that Canadians were involved, and they don't know, you know, they, they people don't know because it's been, you know, because it's such a terrible thing. Maybe you would want to forget about it, and I. Uh, as a historian, obviously, I go, oh, how could you not know that? But uh, uh, or a history, someone interested in history. But as a, when you pull back from it, you got on, you know, you, you, I can see why people have let it go. Yeah, and more recently, you guys have been talking about just uh, what, James had a, a chance to go to Germany and speak to people yeah. there, and just yeah. that whole culture. I find it very fascinating uh, how they've handled that and some of the laws there and the vibe oh, yeah. in the whole country. Yeah, well, and after all, the, the, um, you know, the thing to remember 
post Second World War is which Germany are we talking about? Because yep. Germany was Germany was split in two, and the eastern part. And I've fr- I've a friend from the you know, or several friends actually who grew up in the in the in the DDR, in the German De- Democratic Republic, and uh, uh, and they grew up on the Soviet Union being unequivocally good, heroic. That, that that they were saved from Nazism, fascism by the by the by communism, and what a good thing that was. And then basically any anything that the Western allies may have done, they just did. They just didn't know about it. it. Was all completely airbrushed from history. And then in the Western, the West German people, they they basically they had this sort of you know four or five years where they tr- where they tried to do something about all the people who'd been nazis and then gave up because otherwise they'd have had to arrest 5 million adults and <laughs> put them all on trial and and the, and and you know that included doctors and judges and civil servants and architects and all the people that make a country run and just people and so they couldn't do that so west germany then had to kind of memory hole what it had, what its population had done so you these two and then germany reunites you know, in the nineties, and and the, these two these two cultures collide, and generations move on. And so, yeah, Jim was in Dresden talking to these guys, who, in Germany, it's kind of you're not allowed to be interested in the Second World War for fear you might end up sympathetic towards the the the, the German cause or Nazism or whatever. And these guys just want to learn from it. They want to learn about. It. They want to know about it. Yeah. And it's actually quite difficult to to. Uh, to express an interest sort of publicly in Germany. You know, they, they just don't want anything to do with with it, which is also, which leads to Germany's sort of ambivalent attitude now dealing with what's happening in Ukraine. You know, the, the, they don't like, the Germans don't want to talk, even talk about war, even when there's one going on. It's amazing. Uh, they don't want to pick a side, even though there's one, obviously, where there's, there's a clear thing happening. It's really, really, it's really interesting. And I could talk, I could sit down, I have several German friends, and I, it's a thing you, I really love. And sometimes it's a bit... There's a really good German friend of mine. He's a, he's, a, he's a First World War historian, and we do a lot of sort of teasing about. Well, you started it, guys. Well, I think you find, you know, <laughs> I think you find we finished it, and, all, and that goes on a lot. Yeah, and it's good fun, but it also it sits on top of this this German thing of, you know, war guilt. Yeah, fair enough, but 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 there's more to it, more to it even than that, you know. I feel like it, it helps us understand so much about what's going on in the world today and continues uh, yeah, on yeah. with human, just just yeah. the way we behave. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And all of our politics is, I mean, especially in this country, all of our politics is still inevitably in the wake of it. There's no, you know, no the political settlement that we got at the end of the Second World War, which was the welfare state and the National Health Service and, you know, a socialised healthcare, that all comes straight out of, out of the war. That, that's, that was a thing that, the, the government at the time they promised that to soldiers and airmen and sailors and the and the public that's what you're going to get when this war ends you're going to get you're going to get looked after because of what you've done and uh, and that's still the stab that's the stab that's the bedrock of our political culture here in the UK right yeah for for, be, for, be, for better or worse you know well, and 80 there's, years old 70 years old right and there's many parallels uh, with the yeah. United States as well yeah. uh, good and yeah, yeah. bad with that uh, those that were promised that and and didn't receive it, and those that were promised it, and, and got it, depending on the color yeah. of your skin, which is like yeah, exactly. So well, exactly. Which you know, the ironies abound. There you go. That's the the, the thing about the Second World War is you're you're doing what you can to destroy a racist state. Yeah, but you know, maybe maybe you're not that good on the hot, that hot on the topic yourselves. I mean, it's just you know, we the, the British Empire after all. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, f- fought fighting to defend itself against another empire, you know, and an and empire inspired the Nazi empire, very much inspired by the ideas of what the British empire was, you know? So, like, I mean, you know, and I, as a comedian, I'm a huge fan of irony. The irony is the <laughs> irony is the sort of my bread and butter and is the sort of th- those jarring contradictions that, that, that yeah. are, are, are how, you know, cultures work and civilizations work and history's explained and all that. I, that's the thing. And, and and just how people interact. I find all that really, fu- really, a really fertile subject. So, you know, the, 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 the two kind of sit alongside each other in that respect. Well, when my wife got me this, we have beautiful, we have ways shirt with this firefly <laughs> on it. Uh, and I posted oh, yeah. a picture on, uh, on social media. You know, some of my, some of my friends were like, you're probably the, one of the most like tree hugging, peace loving people that I yeah. know, and you're fascinated yeah. with war. And I'm like, you don't get it, man. It's like it's so complex. <laughs> it helps me understand the social construct of the way people think. It's just yeah, and and then tanks, yeah, and then on top of it, yeah, yeah, and tanks are cool, and tanks are cool. Yeah. <laughs> well, and you know, Buddy Rich, Buddy Rich was a um, was a U.S. Marines uh, karate instructor instructor in the war. That was that's what he did, you know. Jeez, yeah. And you could you could you could hear that in the way he plays his drums. Oh my gosh! <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, it's all, you know, like yeah. that. <laughs> Can I get that drill instructor back? Because this guy's yeah. killing me. Yeah, I'd, I'd rather have. Him. <laughs> well, uh, uh, exactly. w- and one other question: uh, Why are we saying the Second World War and uh, uh. not World War Two? <laughs> Well, um, I mean, this is a running joke on the podcast because it's not a sequel. It's not a movie sequel. It's not Jaws 1, Jaws 2 or Godfather 1, Godfather 2. Because because certainly when the First World War happened, they thought, well, this is the first this is the First World War. And they, they said that meaning we really don't want another one. So you can't call the se- when there's a second one, you can't call it. You know, uh, and in fact, really, I mean, Churchill is actually the first person who started calling it the Second World War directly. He was saying this, and I think he referred to it as this Second World War. So that, so that you know, like uh, uh, we're we're doing it all again. I mean, there's an argument that the Seven Years' War of in the 1750s is the first actual global where, where this war, Britain and France fight each other literally all over the world. That's the first war, but this is the, the you know, but it's because it's not a movie. It's not a movie. No, that, that's that, that's the that's your short answer. Interesting, <laughs> interesting. Well, I I uh, discovered a documentary you did years ago called "The Road to Berlin" that yeah. I watched a couple weeks ago. Really enjoyed it. Uh, I I watched it knowing that that was a while ago, and and you yeah. were diving into this podcast and getting deeper and deeper. And it's like, man, yeah. It, and 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 knowing knowing that you are constantly learning, and it's like here you yeah. are, got this. You're hosting and and yeah, this this wonderful documentary, and yet there's still so much more. Just because I see this guy on TV, he's still learning. Well, and half of it, half of what we put out, because we made that. In, I mean, we made that in 2004. That was on the 60th D-Day anniversary. Wow. Where we were out there filming that. Half of that program's nonsense. It's rubbish. It's been. It's the, the history. The history was just wrong. We were getting things wrong because the, the, the because the so many of the opinions and ideas of what was going on and and diaries and 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 uh, records that have been looked at since have shown that a lot of what we were getting, you know, we, we didn't think we were getting it wrong at the time. I hasten to add, but we were getting quite a lot of that wrong, interestingly. But that's the, that's the other thing about history is new opinions come along. You look at things differently, look at things in a new way and it, and it, and it, and it moves along the whole time. Interesting. You've got a book uh, from 2013, uh, watching war yeah. films with my dad. Yeah. And you have a new book coming out. Is that correct? 
Yeah, I got a new book called Command: How the Allies Learned to Win the uh, Learn the Lessons to Win the Second World War. So that the the the, the first the, the watching war films with my dad is is like a memoir of growing up in England in the nineteen seventies with a dad who was an ex paratrooper and who was into the Second World War and and we'd go to see war movies like A Bridge Too Far and he'd sit there like going, oh God. The you know the the tactical order they're in's wrong and you know, that's the wrong ta- <laughs> that's the wrong tank and they're all close together and all too close together and that sort of thing and uh, and and uh, as a child I'd just be going wow you know explosions machine guns rat a tat tat and he'd be going oh god I can't, you know these guys they're wearing their berets wrong they've got their, their hair cut they need their you know if any film in the seventies oh, right. the haircuts are wrong the haircuts are wrong for a thing about the forties but so I grew up on that and and making scale models and stuff and. And that you know th- this weird relationship that that Britain has because because the 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 idea that the British fought fought alone is like a really really powerful thing in our in our national mm-hmm. culture it really really is and I grew up on that so that's what that book's about and the new book is basically ten case studies of Allied commanders of different ranks and stripes and trying to tell a sort of sequential story through episodes that they're involved in of how the Allies go from being really really and there are armies and i'm not interested in the navies and the air forces how the armies go from being incompetent in the case of the british army to really very very good at the end and the american army from a complete from a jump start from a standing start because the american army basically between the war u.s army is essentially a think tank and used and used to put down protesters when they come to you know when they come to washington to protest Patton's out there on his horse, waving a sword around, charging p- protesters down and stuff with, with MacArthur and all those characters involved in right. that kind of civil civil order stuff. And, you know, so when the war comes, they, they have to create a five million man army like out of, out of thin air. And it's mm-hmm. absolutely, it's amazing what the Americans achieved. Yeah. Because we had an army and we had an empire and we had a structure and we had the le- hard lessons of losing to the Germans. Whereas America, America comes to North Africa in, in, in 1942, lands of Tunisia, without any experience at all of fighting the Germans. It's absolutely amazing. And three years later, just absolutely crushing them and the Japanese at the same time. It's absolutely incredible. And what it does to American society and all that. So so the book's like 10 of these, you know, so we've got, I've got Patton and Bradley in contrast with each other, who are two very, two big characters and very, very different people. And because uh, Bradley's, Bradley's, you know, from, from Shitsville somewhere and, and is very much made in the army. He's a self-made man via the army. Mm-hmm. Whereas Patton, Patton is an aristocrat, essentially an American aristocrat, basically, and is, and is his own invention, you know, like wants to be a warrior and invents himself as a warrior. So they're very, the contrasting styles and they, that showed and the, but they're both brilliant. They're both brilliant leaders, but completely different. It just shows you can do things very, very differently and, and still have great powerful effect. Yeah. Well, man, I'm, I'm super excited for that to come out. Well, I'm, thank you. I'm about halfway through uh, James's more. Is A Brother in Arms, is that his a bro- Yeah, Brothers in Arms is his last book. Yeah, the one about the Sherwood Rangers, which is an amazing book. Yeah. Right. I, uh, yeah, I heartbreaking. Bought, a, yeah. bought a copy for my dad and sent it to him. I was like, man, I, I, I better get two because he's going to send this right <laughs> back to me. He likes to re-gift things after, but he loves it. So we've kind of been following each other along oh, brilliant. that book. Oh, magic. That's uh, nice. Yeah. Uh, so maybe I should write a, uh, uh, reading war books with my dad. I'm going to write. <laughs> I'm going to do a film about it. It's going to be the complete reversal. <laughs> 
Um, thanks, man. It. Thanks for uh, no problem entertaining entertaining me with this. I could go on and on, uh, or, or just listen. <laughs> uh, I'll just. But I want to talk about the British Drum Company. Yes. How'd you, so that formed in 2015. Yeah. And how did you get involved in that? What's the story behind that? Well, the story the story is um, about 20 years ago because because I've been I've been a sort of uh, I've been a stand up comic for 30 years now and. About 20 years ago, I kind of broke broke through here in the UK and people started to know who I was. And um, along the way, I'd I'd befriended some various people at Premier who, um, you know, because I'd played Premier drums when I was a kid because my parents were very, they were real bi-British people. So we had we had Premier drums and it's, you know, it's Keith Moon and it was Phil Collins and there's cool people in the when I was a boy, right? And... And I got to know the people at Premier and they had me do some stuff for them when they launched the one series drums, which is about, which is a bit over 20 years ago. Because the drum, none of the drummers want to talk, but I don't mind talking. So basically <laughs> we would, we would do a clinic and the drummers, the tongue tied drummers would, would do their amazing, you know, five straight rolls with their feet or whatever. And I, I'd host it. And at the end of it, I got, I, they, they gave me a drum set, which was, which was a wonderful thing. Right. Um, because I've always played. I've played since I was a kid, and and then I played I, uh, at the school I went to. They were very. They, they were. They didn't. Li- the school I went to. They did not like drums. They didn't like drum sets. I had to do percussion, so I had to play timpani and cymbals and triangles and things. And all I wanted to do was play a drum kit. So uh, after school, I sort of got in a band and I kind of self-taught. And then on and off, I'd have bursts of playing a lot. So played in bands at university, and then afterwards for a bit, where we tried to sort of. Uh, get things together and and it didn't work but that was fine and then I rested it because I was so busy doing stand-up so I came back to it 20 years ago became friends with Premier but to cut the long story short I then I got divorced um, uh, when was it uh, 12, 12 11 years ago and a few years after that once the sort of dust had settled I said to myself I'm going to go to Premier because they were doing this thing called the One Series and um, One Series drums were literal ones off one-off drum sets. Mm. So you go to them, you'd say, I want I want the oak with birch and I want uh, this veneer and that veneer and this design. And it was a it was an interesting concept because you'd go on the website and you'd see like 20 drum kits and you'd think, oh, I want that one. So you'd ring them up and say, can I have that one? They go, no, 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 they're one-off. So you can't have to. You'd, you'd like, oh, <laughs> what? But I like that one. Anyway, so I go, I go to see Keith Keogh, who's the guy who was doing this for them. And Keith had been at a company called KD Drums before that. Mm -hmm. And he made these amazing bespoke anything you want drums. And Keith and I, I went to see him and I decided, I arrived having decided what I want because I thought the last thing, if you go see a bespoke drum maker, the last thing you want is to not know what you want because you'll go, you'll go crazy because there are just too many options. and, And also you don't really know what you want. You think you might want, maple and you think you might want birch but you don't really know when you're presented with you can have anything you like Mm -hmm. Um, and this is the thing we talk about a lot in manufacturing is you need to reduce actually you need to the tyranny of choice they call it and you need to reduce the choice i think sometimes anyway so keith makes me this drum kit and he couldn't get he was using this bog oak which is this wood from a swamp that's two thousand years old and they carbon dated it and he, and he was using it for the first time and he couldn't get it to set. So he'd ring me up and go, I just can't get this wood to set. I'm really sorry. And he, this became like a, 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 a running joke. And it didn't matter because I, I had a drum kit to play. It didn't matter. And it was, just, it was a special drum set and it was a one-off and it, all these sorts of things. So it just didn't matter that it was taking time. And, uh, and we became friends in the process of this drum kit never setting quite. 
And eventually, you know, months later, I get the thing. And uh, and in that time, we bec- we become pals. And I travel a lot working as a comic. And every time I go to the Northwest, where he where he was based, I'd go see him. And I'd go to the factory and we'd have a cup of coffee and we'd catch up. Because it was like knowing Willy Wonka. He'd go, do you want to see what I'm working on now? And he'd, he'd take you down yeah. and he'd, he goes, he'd show you, he'd show you, you know, some 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 new veneer system or a design or lamination thing. Anyway, and uh, and one time I say, well, what's going on? You know, and he goes, well, I think I think I think me and Premier are coming to the end of the road together. And I said the thing you shouldn't say. I said, well, in that case, if that happens, let's go into business together, right? The thing, without really giving it a second thought. Because the the man is, I mean, it, he's a genius. He's um, a, an absolute stone cold mm. genius at, at, um, at drum manufacture and so many other things, as it turns out. And um, and three weeks later, he rings me up and goes, "Did you mean it?" <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah, I did. Yes, Keith, I did mean it. And then we assembled. We got a, a design engineer in, um, a guy who was in the Royal Marines Corps of Drums to do the marching side of things. Um, Ian Matthews is a, who plays in Kasabian who are a big band here in the UK and, and in Europe. And um, uh, and that was the original core of partners. And we set the company up, like you say, seven years ago. And Keith brought his drum makers from Premier with him, his, his bespoke guys from Premier with him. And we haven't looked back. Yeah. And uh, it, we, it, has li- I mean, it has gone from two people on the factory floor, you know, cutting shells. And they make the way the shells are made is... Uh, we'll get to that in a minute. It's really interesting, but but we've gone from two people to like twenty people working there seven years later, to having from from a couple of people playing our drums. So there's a guy called uh, Joe Donovan who's in a, in a big pop band here called Blossoms, um, and and then Ian in Kasabian. We've gone from that to having you know Nico McBrain from Iron Maiden playing our drums, which is like it. it, it you know, and that's that was two years ago. So in, within five years, we'd got to there. Yeah, that's which amazing. Is just, yeah, which is yeah. I, I mean, I, when I tell it like this, I, I have to remind myself how incredible it is. It's like sort of what we've managed to pull off, and it's you know, it's it's been we've basically suffered from the problems of growth of an ex, of expansion because I thought it would kind of be a bit boutiquey and we wouldn't we wouldn't we wouldn't kind of break out of the UK perhaps and all that. But actually, there's no point doing that. You've got to you've got to aim at you've got to aim at the top if you're going to build drum kits and build drums. Now you've got to. You've got to aim at being a world brand, I think. Um, uh, otherwise, what? Otherwise, otherwise, what's the point? Where's the glory? Where's the? Where's the, where's the <laughs> so where's I'm, the I'm realizing, like we, so we started in 2015 as well with this. Yeah. We're up to about 367, 68 episodes. Yeah. We're, we're trying to make plans on what to do for our 400th episode, and we always every hundredth we do something special, some yeah. some event, yeah. something. Yeah. Uh, and. Uh, no, I see that you guys are all over. There's a there's a, a place here in Nashville that is a distributor yeah. of, of them. Yeah, so, yeah. So yeah. It, it's I mean, fascinating. We, I mean, we had a really good Nam festival just before the pandemic. Yeah, you know, we went we went to the music Messa and it was it was an incredible thing to, because we were showing Nico's drums, showing that we got Nico as well, and the stand was just full of it was a it was a you know a who's who, and also all the other manufacturers coming checking us out and you know sucking their sucking their teeth and looking at the stuff because i think that i think the stuff we're making is the finishes uh, the finishes the shells the build the sound every, and and the branding everything is incredibly cool now and um and the and the shells are handmade they are cut with a with a you know with a box cutter with a stanley knife as we call it here by hand with a steel ruler and then 
with increments, tiny increments shaved off until they click into place. So the shells are not heated. They're not, uh, they're not treated in any way. It's, it's, it's plain glue and they're, and they're left to set. So they're not, they're, they're never heated up. They're never cooked. The glue never crystallizes. They're like, they're as, they're as, and we think because, because we use the inattention of the plies and they're horizontal and vertical plies. So the, there's the, the, all the forces are spread out inside the shell. Okay. The, the joins are all at 12, three, six and nine o'clock. So the, the, again, all of the, the, the force of the shell holding itself together is evenly spread. We, that's why, I mean, I think, and they're made, and they're, they are made by hand. I've seen the guys make from the raw ply to the finished drum. I think that's why our shells are, are so, 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 so good. And why, um, and why, you know, I think we've got people's attention. Well, it's, what do they call it? Cold press molding? Yes, cold press lamination. So, okay. so it is, it, it, there's no, there is no heat. And it, and it literally mm-hmm. goes from, we have the, the pie, the ply, the, the, you know, the, the wood, which is paper thin. Then we make an initial ply. Um, then we make a three core, a, a three ply core, and the cores, the cores go always go horizontal, and vertical, and horizontal, okay. so that so that the so that there isn't a weak point in the wood, and, and the joins, like I say, the joins are all spread out at right angles, so that you don't have one join where all the all the tensioning of the head ends up as a no as a nodal point, right. which can which stresses the wood out, stresses the shell out, stresses the sound out, and then when it and then when it comes to wraps, we don't do wraps. We've 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 we don't wrap a shell after we've made it. The the um uh the ones we've got with the, with the, with the sort of uh, hard hardened out of service like a plastic wrap thing, that goes in the mold in the shell mold and is part of the mold. Interesting. Uh, and is bound direct to the wood, so you get the sonic quality of the hardness of the plastic. So those drums tend to have even more bite than a conventional. Oh my gosh! Shell. Wow. Because they're because they're bound they're bound they're bound together because because what you get with what you get with um, wrapping sometimes is oversizing because you, you know you make your standard shell and you put the wrap on and you, so you get the extra couple of millimeters you tend to get a lip mm-hmm. a lip where they right. where one sits over the other and that we don't have any of that so they're, they're again they're perfect they're perfect circles in that regard. Gotcha. Uh, you have the Legend series, which yeah. is Scandinavian birch. Yeah, that's right. Uh, live, live lounge, which is um, a mahogany um, uh, shell, uh, and and uh, with but with a rounded bearing edge. So the birch, the legends, the legends have a forty-five degree um, uh, bearing edge and a birch shell, and then the mahogany, the, the live lounge of a mahogany with a rounded bearing edge. So you get more head sitting on the on the on the shell. So it's a bit of a warmer tone. Gotcha. That's a you know jazz. They're, they're, the 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 live lounges are jazz. The legends are rock, but obviously. Play what you want on them, I, you know. <laughs> yeah, these days it's all over the map. I mean, you know, exactly. who's recording exactly. what and and what kind of sounds exactly. they're looking for. Exactly, and what are you recording it with, and where are you recording? I mean, people are people are really savvy to all that stuff now in a way that in a way that perhaps they weren't um, a while ago. You know, I'm in, I'm you know, I'm in my host studio. Beautiful. Um, and there's all these snare drums behind me as well, and all this sort of stuff. And lots of prototypes here, but but. We all we all, we all know more about that now, drummers. I think we all know more about the record the record the technology. And you know, this the sound of a snare drum is as much to do with an SM fifty seven, perhaps, as it is to do with um, anything else. Arguably, you know that the, uh, I was t- it's funny. I was talking to talking to Gavin Harrison. I mean, there's a name drop there a while ago because <laughs> um, he's a friend of a friend of mine, and we were we were chatting about this, and we're talking about how the sound of a snare drum 
starts with an SM57, then is normally a Remo coated ambassador. <laughs> then is the shell. Yeah. Well, then is the tuning. Then is the shell, and then the and and don't forget the dampening. So there's like, you know, just just having a black beauty or whatever is only the sort of or, or one of our bluebirds or one of our big softies. That's just the beginning of it. Yeah. There's still the, yeah, everything's got to go through that eight, you know eighty eighty pound hundred dollar microphone. You know you know what I mean. But well, that being said, uh, so tell me about your snare drums. I mean, like w- w- you, there's a oh, bit yeah, of a variety okay. there, and and is there anything uh, anything well, that I'll t- stands I'll out for you? Well, the one that the, the well, what I've got here, uh, I mean, we've twelve snare drums now. Um, the last one we brought out is a thing called the Super Seven, which is a seven by thirteen um, uh, drum that's made of um, uh, purple heart uh, maple. So it's like purple on the on an interior with a cherry exterior, I think, lacquered cherry exterior, and that that drum and it's got several air holes on it. I think it's got half a dozen air holes on it. Wow. That drum is. Uh, um, I got, I, you know, because I get sent them, and I and and then, uh, uh, what do you think of this? And I'll send it. I, I, I don't, I don't, I'll send it back, going, well, maybe, maybe you need, you know, maybe this needs changing, or, what, or that needs changing, or I just go, yeah, you've done it again. It's amazing. But but that is our latest drum. But we've um, uh, several we've got. So there's a, a, um, uh, a snare drum called the Big Softy, and the Big Softy is made of balsa wood. So. Um, which is very very light and full of air holes and very very like porous. Yeah. So it's not like not like birch, which is dense, mm-hmm. and b- birch is very elastic. Balsa balsa wood isn't like that. It's soft and it's sort of yielding. So what you get with the big softy, we think, is like it's kind of like you know, and an aluminium shell is just sort of more inert than a brass or a steel one. Sure. In terms of the sound, so it's kind of like an aluminium wooden drum. Wow. It's got that kind of tidiness in the tone and a sort of heart in the tone, not really very many overtones at all, but, but it's a wooden drum. So it's got the flavor of a wooden drum, but with this sort of uh, heart and control to it that um, is really attractive. And that drum, the reason that drum was a um, made as a prototype for Ian Matthews, uh, who I said before, you know, who plays with Kasabian, he was on a session for massive attack and, and they said, can you get like a really buttery snare drum? So he rang Keith and said, they've asked for this. Keith sent this balsa wood drum down because he'd not made one with balsa wood before. Sent it down as a, as a trial. Yeah. And in playing it, they all loved it. And in playing it, Ian Ian nicknamed it the Big Softy. So you think, well, that's what it's got to be called because that's that's the name he gave it. That's the name it it it, it gave itself. It you spoke know? to him. So we've got exactly. So with the Super Seven, the Big Softy. There's a Bluebird, which is a beaded brass, uh, fourteen by. I think we do five and a half to six and a half. Uh, uh, you know, which which is. Uh, an amazing uh you know absolute on the on the nose brass snare drum mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. we've we've the aviator which is an aluminium drum and again we do that in like a i think of five and a half and a six and a half i, I mean i make i may be getting this wrong and i'm going to get shouted at when my marketing guy <laughs> listens to this but but and that's that that's you know that's very much in the you know in in you know our tribute to the acrylite that sort of that sort of aluminium drum that that really is um you know that got that absolute crisp uh dryness to it but 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 the bite as well of a metal drum uh what else have i got i've got uh, there's the archer which is made of um you um uh and you yeah you wood was used to make bow, bows bows uh, long bows okay in, uh, yeah in, in in medieval england so at the battle of agincourt you know the, the the great english battle where the english trounced the french the archers used bows made of you and there's two there's two 
kinds of wood in you. There's the there's the bit that there's the bit that that will bend, and there's the bit that's that that won't. And that's how you make a bow. So the the, the front half of the bow is the bit that won't bend, and the and the back half is the the bit that that will. So when you pull on the bow, the back bends. And the front doesn't want to, and you let go, and the front snaps straight. Wow! So it's a very interesting wood for for bending and laminating and molding because it's got lots of tensile energy in it. And that again, that's a that's a like a a drum with real with tons of character. And I've got a duke. We only made fifty dukes. That's one of the prototypes behind me, and that's made of bog oak. So that's two thousand years old. So or three thousand depends on the on the log you get from the from the, <laughs> the, the from the broker and that basically well our whole thing was you want a vintage drum you want a drum from the 1960s you, forget about it this right. one's this one's prehistoric <laughs> this is from before <laughs> christ so <laughs> there you go you know and and that's that's a that's a that's a really delicious drum but it's it's sort of almost too precious to put to get out because it's a beautiful thing as well it's almost too precious to get out and then um and then we've you know a, a maverick which is a maple drum We've uh, um, again. I'm going to get in trouble um, for not remembering them all. Uh, we've the Icarus, which is Nico McBrain's uh, drum, and that's a that's a wooden, that's an all oak, black oak, dense black oak mm -hmm. snare drum. I think it's an eight inch depth. And then there's the there's the Talisman, which is a spun steel snare drum. Um, uh, uh, that again, I think it's an eight inch drum. It might be seven and a half. That, that's a um, uh, uh, that's to Nico's spec. So we've we've his two snare drums and and I think that's all of them. But we we really we we think there's so much to be done with snare drums. There's so much there's so much you can do in this. I think there's so much to come with snare drums. Actually, yeah. once you start really think really thinking about what you can do with them in terms of strainers, in terms of dampeners and internal dampeners and upper up up, up top side snares and all that sort of thing. There's lots you can do, and you know A and F are really good at all that. And a really, their right. drums are really interesting in that respect. So there's 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 lots to play with with a snare drum, and because we make marching drums, we're keenly aware of that as well. Because marching drums are all about the sort of um, mechanisms and the uh, uh, and super high tension and all that sort of stuff. It's crazy. So I mean, yeah, because we've got the marching division as well. So we do a pipe drum and we do a marching drum, um, uh, and and our drums have gone to the Royal Marines and the Guards now and all that sort of stuff. So we're making inroads into the into the military side of things which is you know their requirements the marines requirement for a snare drum is you know is, is a billion miles from what a, you know a, a drum set player wants you know what the marching guys want from a drum is completely different they want it to be really light because they have to wear it yeah um uh they want them to all sound exactly the same <laughs> <laughs> no character you know there's there's none of this there's none of this oh i need a deep one and i need a you know i need or i need one with a bit of bite or i need some you know like something with a longer tone or, or, or you know what i mean they yeah. don't want any of that they want them to sound exactly the same look exactly the same yeah um yep. and they have the thing of the top and bottom mechanisms you know um and they tension them extremely at extremely high tensions you know the pipe drum got we we we, we make we made a pipe drum for jim kilpatrick who's the you know, world champion pipe drummer here in the UK, and uh, and uh, and he's an ab and he has the most amazing hands. His hand, you watch him play, and you think, how on mm. earth is he doing this? Mm. And uh, uh, and you know, he's done it by doing a billion hours. But there you go. Um, and he, they, the, the the pipe gum drum guys in Scotland, they they tune the drums to bagpipes for a start. So they they get the whistle out and they pitch tune them. Wow! But they've tuned them, they prepared them, 
and they tune them up and it takes a month to get the drum to settle at the pitch they want it at. So they tune it up and they'll leave it uh, and they'll play it and then and then they'll come back and they'll tune it up a week later and, and the whole thing's going, you know, you can hear the cracking and the tension going into the show. Wow. It's amazing. And it's another, and it's a, and the interesting is another planet from drum set because what they want bears no relation to what, um, you know, a guy in a, a jazz trio wants, which he wants, he wants his subtle snare drum. You know, it's like, they, they want these things that are completely uniform and that go that go whack. You know, they don't... Uh, it's an amazing, amazing dealing with that. And that makes you really think, thinking about that, designing for that, thinking about that, really makes you think about what's going into a more, you know, like a, a rock snare drum or a jazz snare drum, into a conventional drum set uh, drum. And that, you know, that cross-fertilisation of uh, design and development is, has been a thing that's really been part of what we've been doing. That's that's amazing. I've been a Marillion fan since high school. Ah, and oh, I saw brilliant! That, I saw Ian Mosley, yeah, yeah, uh, join up, and uh, yeah, that's 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 amazing. I know you, that you're a, a prog rock fan, uh, yes, but I don't know, so, yeah. didn't know how much uh, you were into them or Ian or. or well, they're lo- they're they they're from um, they're local to where I grew up, so they're like that. There was the prog scene in Aylesbury. My parents are from near there, and um, yeah. Because Genesis used to play, there was a club in Aylesbury that Genesis used to play. You know, in the early seventies when they were mm-hmm. when they were dressing up as flowers and stuff, and um, and that that spawned a prog scene that Marillion came out of, and mm-hmm. and Stephen Wilson is sort of adjacent to, and all those all those all those guys, uh, Porcupine Tree, and all those people. Um, uh, and uh, yeah, yeah, no, I've I've been to Marillion since I was I don't know fourteen, so yeah. it's it's. It, this is all. This is the strange thing about some of this is you end up. Yep. You end up meeting these guys and you're like, hell, like, you know, like, why do you want to talk? To, why, why are you talking to me? You know, like it, it's the, it's the strangest thing. Or, you know, and I say to my wife, I go, oh, yeah, I won't believe who I saw the other day. And she's like, don't know, I don't know who you're talking about. I go, yeah, but tr- trust me, trust me. If I if I had to tell my 13 year old self about today, that it will blow his mind. Yeah, yeah, I I, I know. I think my wife is over it uh, after you know, and 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 then working retail for a few years and meeting some yeah. of my heroes yeah. through there, and then I I, yeah. I saw Marillion a couple times here in the states, and I I don't know, I was probably like 18 or 19, and I'm backstage yeah. and had a chance to meet Ian. And of course, what's the one thing I say? I said, uh, "What was it like opening up for Rush?" And <laughs> I'm like, "Dude, you could have talked a little bit more about him or their <laughs> show." But no, I had to bring that up. But he was very nice. Well, about I suppose. It. I, I mean, is that a question he gets asked often? You know, you never know. It might be. It might be you were the first guy ever to ask him that, and he's thinking, "Great, a new question." Because that's always the that's the other problem when you meet you when you meet when you meet people like that. Yeah, yeah. I met because I used to. Um, there's a, or the, I think it's still going. There's a music magazine called Q in the UK. That was a big deal for a while, and they used to do this big awards thing every year, and um, and it was a big, a big, basically British British pop rock music event. Everyone having a drink, big party, and all that. And 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 one, uh, one year, Paul McCartney was on. I was hosting it, and Paul McCartney was there, and and like I. <laughs> That we all went for photos afterwards, and I I was able to get this thing a big photograph with everyone who came through, like because because I was the host, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was, I was standing next to Maka, and this is oh, this is a horrendous name drop. This, but this is sort of uh, uh, pertinent to what you said. And it, and I said to him, I said, oh, I came I came and saw you at Hyde Park a uh, year before last, and you know it was absolutely fantastic. Oh, thanks very much, man. You know, great. Cheers. <laughs> I said, uh, and I said, you know, it's absolutely brilliant. And brought the kids with me. And here's the thing that you know. 
they don't they don't know any of your music because they because they because it was when they were like little it was when they were sort of 10 and 7 they don't you know they didn't know your music really but you know but they they didn't they'd never heard of you but they knew all the songs and all that and like, oh yeah right and he has heard that he's heard someone say that to him sure like a a, bil- a billion times and you could see him thinking oh for, for Christ's sake <laughs> Why? Why this again? Why me? Damn you to hell! And uh, and I knew that I knew I'd blown it. I knew I'd blown it. I had my opportunity to sort of like hang out, make chit chat with McCartney, and then him go, "Should we go for? Should we go for a beer? Let's go to the bar." And I, I absolutely, I completely blew it because I said the 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 first, you know, the first thing everyone says. Oh my god! You, you know what I mean? I so do. maybe, maybe, maybe Ian was like, oh, oh, no one's asked me about opening for Rush before. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> my first interaction with Peter Erskine, I was trying to be sarcastic and make a joke. Oh and, no! And he was not into it, and I, <laughs> I, I had a chance to redeem myself a couple times. Uh, Good. Uh, real quick, we're running out of time, but uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, your history with drums, uh, you're you're yeah. touring, you're playing. I, I know yeah. you're you're touring as a stand-up. Could you yeah, could yeah. you could you briefly tell us about that? I, I mean, it's, it's just amazing. I, I wanted to try and, and do a game with you here and 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 uh, name a country we've defeated it, and I wanted to throw out some countries your way. Um, but tell us about this pub landlord um, for those of us that aren't as familiar. Well, I do. I play this this character he's called the pub landlord and, and the thing is when I first came up with it, I never gave him a name and the idea is it's raining and you go into a bar you go into a pub and the guy behind the bar starts talking to you like in a kind of uns- in a kind of unsolicited way right 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 and he and he and he says ah oh, you know what do you do for a living ah oh, you know what a terrible job that is and you know what what you know why are you wearing that coat you know you look like an asshole and all that and 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 I've 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 had this character for a really long time now, actually, for, for 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 almost almost thirty years now, and it came about in a show by accident, and I've stuck with it, and it's sort of become it's I'm fairly I'm pretty well known here now, fairly well known here, and and he is a sort of absurd super patriot. He knows everything about everything. Um, uh, he's very conservative, sometimes with a small C rather than a big one, but, but all that you know, he's Archie Bunker. Uh, yeah, to, you're to sure. Dr- to draw an American parallel, or who was based on a British character anyway, called um, called Alf Garnet. Anyway, that's by the by. And so I tore that. Uh, uh, I'm touring that at the moment. We obviously we had to stop for the pandemic. Um, so we've gone back out, and I'm on a I'm on a tour this year. That's about ninety shows in all. Once we're done, and all over the country and Ireland, and uh, and you know we're doing sort of two or three a week in kind of thousand seaters. And uh, I talk for a couple of hours, and I have a I have a, I have a lot. I mean, I have a lot of fun doing it. I absolutely love it. And um, the, the 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 best thing about the, you know, the pandemic was great because I was home for the longest I've ever been home in my life. Yeah. I, it turns out I like my family and my family like me, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, you never know, do you? No, no, not until then. A start of that, a lot of people, you know, they're dreading finding that the, the answer to that question. Um, uh, and, and, and it's, so being back and being back in theatres has been absolutely, has been brilliant. It's been absolutely, it's been the most amazing thing. And for the shows, I write and record music to go with them and everything. And uh, so the so the drumming is still present in in the stage show. So nice. I, I, there's always a theme tune and there's a song, usually a song at the end and all that sort of stuff. And and all the interval music I, is a I've written a bunch of songs with one, with one of my daughters. She's us playing together and and all that, all recorded here. And her, she's an amazing singer. So the whole thing is the drumming. My mum always says to me, "Are you going to ever sit down and, 
at a drum kit and fit it into the show. I said, I can't remember. They, you know, we, we can't do that. There's no laughs in that. And then, and also, my my mind immediately runs to breaking down a drum kit and setting it <laughs> setting it up. And, <laughs> yeah. and like the tea, you know how annoying that can be. Yeah. Um. But the but the music's all a big part of it because because I've always found as a, you know, as a crea- as a creative person, if if I can't write write some jokes, I can sit down at the drums and another idea will come. And if you've got the two going, they sort of scratch each other's back very nicely and move the whole thing along, and you stay creative. And and. I've been doing this more, you know, more than thirty years now, and staying creative is the sort of um, is the is the is the challenge when you've done a, a thing for a really long time. And so the mu- music's very much tied into that. And working with the drum company and treating that as a creative yes a- endeavor yes. is the is the same thing. I we all I've discovered same... I've discovered that with the podcast. It very much yeah, feeds yeah, yeah. back and forth. Yeah, we get that yeah. that feedback. Is yeah. that you on the We Have Ways theme? Something? No, that isn't me. No, okay. that isn't me. That's that our producer chose that. Um, because okay. we because when we first started working together, um, he didn't know that. Um, if, if he'd given me the opportunity, I'd have recorded some music and said we're using this, so that I so I got the royalty. <laughs> That's the reason I'd have done it. <laughs> one one quick last thing. I mean, there's just yeah, sure. so many different things that you're doing. Is have you ever found yourself kind of combining these interests together? Like, I mean, you mentioned the thing about Buddy Rich being a karate instructor. I mean, you 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 knew yeah. that, but and then there's uh, there's a great. Uh, stories and information about rationing and how it affected manufacturing of drums. And, you, yeah. you know, we yeah. have all these different things with drums with wood lugs and, you know, all this crazy yeah. cool things that, um, yeah. Gosh. Well, an industrial, sta- industrial standardization, you know, like the, 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 the proper, because what's interesting is before the war, as America goes into the war, it's got mass production. They've done it. They've figured it out. Mm-hmm. They figured out actually how to do, you know, OEM parts and, uh, and build, build gearboxes that fit in everything. They figured all that out. Whereas British manufacturing as it enters the second world war is not work, figured that out. And everything, basically all of British, British factories are all essentially gigantic workshops and everyone's got a file and they're all filing the mm-hmm. things to fit. Yeah. Whereas American, American factories are, you, you attach part A to part B and you send it out yep. and, yep. and everything's standardized. And, and that, that's the thing. That's the, you know, in manufacturing, that's the super, the, the 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 great lesson, and we try to apply that to drum manufacturers. That idea, although we're making these things by hand in a sort of inner workshop boutique way, we're still mass producing them because because that's the that's how you get the quantity out, and that's actually how you get the quality out in the end if you shake it down. Because we 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 did a thing last year where we went and looked at a Mustang, a P fifty one Mustang. And how that's made is that's made in mod in modules. And there's essentially six modules that make up a Mustang, I think. And you know, eight bolts, you put the wings on, that's it. And you compare that to a Spitfire. The Spitfire, you know, which is its which Brit it's, it's kind of its British equivalent, was made by a guy who made boat planes before the war. It was designed by a boat plane designer. And it's been dis- it's been described as a wooden plane made out of aluminium. So he used all his he made all of his construct used all of his construction methods yeah. for making a, a, a wooden aircraft, and applied them to a, a, a metal frame plane. Yeah, and you can't mass produce them properly. And when you restore a Mustang, you you just you know you know where the rivet holes will be. You know where the bolts go. Right. Every Spitfire, every Spitfire, Spitfire is literally different because it depends who was drilling the rivet holes on the day. They didn't use a template. 
They'd say, do, do 12 across the top, so you do 12 across the top any way you wanted, rather than, <laughs> I know. I mean, it sounds amazing. It's incredible that they produce tens of thousands of the things. But this is, this is the interesting, and, 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 you know, the American le- lesson is the lesson to learn, not the British kind of, oh, well, you know, we, how you fudge through. But see, that's an episode right there. That's what's so. Yeah, yeah. I love that. It's it's that's so amazing. No, I just think about well, you know, you. just just drumming uh, drummers who are comedians. You know, whether it's Sammy Davis yeah. Jr. or Bill Burr. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, uh, or the effects of you know the the war. So I don't know. I mean, they're they're just. There's all these different things that every once in a while yeah. worlds collide and you're like, oh, yeah. wow, look at this. Um, I remember going through, you know, one of the more recent sonar uh, catalogs and, and there was a timeline of their history and finding that fascinating. You know, it's like, oh, interesting. Yeah. What's going oh, the, on? Here? Yeah. Oh, the whole, I mean, the, the, the you know, the whole, I mean, it's interesting because the, the history of drum manufacturers is also a history of manufacturing. So you see, you know, you see that you see the, the wave of Japanese kits coming through in the 70s at the same time as. Japanese motor cars, you know, the same, th- the same thing's happening. They're applying standards of, st- they're applying ideas of standardization that they've actually learned from the Americans. They've been given by the Americans after the war. And you, th- th- those things are happening. Those things are happening at the same time. And they're also happening because, you know, Western countries are becoming post-industrial and you can't afford to pay people to make things by hand. You know, I mean, you look at the way, you look at the way Fender uh, guitars have moved around the world. That If you look, if you look at, Fenders in the 50s were made by Mexican labor in California. Then that got too expensive. So they were made by Mexican labor in Mexico. Mm-hmm. Then they were, then they, you know, then they moved to wherever the equivalent of Mexican labor was. And, the, and, the, and wherever a Fender guitar is built will t- is kind of a barometer of where somewhere is in terms of its industrialization. Yeah. And yeah. then where it's, where it's bought is in, tells you something about the, the consumer society that's buying it. And that's a history story. That's a history and economic story, like right from the 50s through till now. It's fascinating. That Peisty yeah. story is, is, is interesting yeah, as, as yeah. far as, you know, yeah. the story of that and, and all that stuff. Al, thank yeah. you so much. Oh, it's, it's, it's a total pleasure. Yeah, man. Uh, I, I, it, it, it took us, what, maybe three months to, to get this together. I know, I know. I'm so sorry. <laughs> hey, 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 man. You, you fall into a, a, a large category of, of just busy. That's why we, we have, you know, yeah. guests like you, because you're busy and you're a working drummer and, uh, you know, it just works out really well. But it's... Uh, it, 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 I'm, uh, it's a pleasure. I'm a little starstruck. I've been listening to you ah. for a couple years now, man. I'm excited. Oh, thanks, man. Thank for, you so much. And there's a lot of uh, about what you guys do on your podcast and the way you work with your Patreon uh, members that uh, I take a page from. And uh, oh. you know, oh bless you, so. thank you. But thanks again for your time. Tell uh, Ian Mosley I said hello. Uh, Ciao. <laughs> Pass it on. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Al. Thanks so much. I'll, Have a great I'll, day. I'll, I'll, I'll ask him how it was opening for Rush, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, mate. Wonderful. Have a good one. Have a, gr- you, have a great weekend. You too. Bye-bye. Cheerio. Bye-bye. So there you have it, my conversation with Al Murray. Thanks, everyone, for coming along with me and indulging me while we talk about the Second World War. Uh, I find it amazingly fascinating and uh, finding out that Al is also a drummer and invested in this drum company, it it just showcases how multifaceted people's careers can be, and I hope that is a takeaway for you. Stay tuned next week for Zach Albetta's interview with Eric Slick. 
He's a Nashville-based drummer who plays for Dr. Dog and many others. But for now, thanks everyone for listening. Please stay safe, and I hope to see you around. Bye-bye.